forgot last week, didn't record it. <laughs> <laughs> well, how come you want to record it? I mean, this is, uh, to, tell, to be very blunt about it, uh, the material tonight is not the most interesting. It's, 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 it's general norm. <laughs> Anybody who wants to take a cup of coffee or something. And the idea of, of, of sitting through this lecture again, when I'm talking about you know decrees and administrative acts and uh, juridical persons and all this kind of stuff, I mean, it's better just to read it in the commentary. Yeah. It's kind of like Paul and I Riley. The jokes were dry, but it was a presentation. That's what made them interesting. Larry will get you everywhere. So, yeah, so. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. Yeah. You just hit record. Okay. And I'm just going to put my email. Oh, okay. And that way it comes to me and they can we can share it if they want it. Okay. Oh, so when I put the email in. You can put your own. You want yeah, your I've done that. No, you put yours in. But when I've done it in the past, it's it's told me, okay, it's available. But is it only available to me then? No. Well, it's it's also in our account, our Zoom account. So I mean, the guy, the guys themselves. They they don't I'm, see it unless you share the link. Oh oh oh! I didn't do that. Oh okay. I think I have a link from two weeks ago. Okay. Well, it's in. Uh, I usually um, delete them after five days. Yeah. Well, I don't have the room in our Zoom account. could end up in the uh, um, the internet? There is a, the, it can be shared, but they can't download it. We have the option of not allowing them to download it. So if they can't download it, then it's not going to yeah. Seen any place else. Well, why don't we take that off? Oh, yeah. No, yeah. we do we take that off. Oh, yeah. Well, the last thing you need is all these courses exactly. from Woody being available yeah. no, on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. All right, so when you're done, just hit the button again. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's it. And then yeah. also end. Right. And then, and then turn the No, you're not turning the wheel. All right. I think I'm, I'm thinking good now. Right. You are. <laughs> Thank you. Most important, it's so humid today. That's the main reason why my uh, arthritis is acting up. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it is, because our last semester, we only have one. Alrighty. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, <coughs> full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for us. St. Francis, pray for us. Pray for us. Father and Son of the Spirit. Amen. Somebody's mic is on. That's all right, I guess. All righty. Now. Seven of you, right, on, on Zoom, right? Um, let me just take attendance again. You're all here, right? How many are, is it all together? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten? Raise your hand if you're not here. Right, right, right. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay, the in person, so ten. 
Right, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay. Mark all present. Mark all present. Okay. All right, that's that. And then zoom. And three. Okay, so um, as I just mentioned, we're, we're dealing with um, yeah, general norms, and it's uh, in, in any field you have general norms, and they're and they're uh, uh, they're abstract and they're just general principles. And you have to get through them. That's all, um, but they're very important because you can't function without them. Um, and, and I'm sorry again because I've been teaching the two courses. Um, where where did we leave off? 126. 65? Yeah. yeah. The good news about this class is because it, uh, it has to go so much faster than the other class, uh, we skip a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you, you told us you were going to start with 1085 tonight. That's right, yeah. Okay, because, yeah, when I, you know, nota bene, huh? when I say skip, you know, skip it. You know, I mean, you can, you're welcome to read anything you want in here, but, but for purposes of preparing for, uh, uh, exams and things, uh, you know, when I say skip, you should skip because uh, there are other things you need to focus on. So you just skipped a whole bunch of things, um, privileges and all this kind of stuff. But now we get into something that's very important for you um, as, as, uh, as future deacons, and that is dispensations. <coughs> and we're going to see um, in, in a few weeks, uh, in, when it comes to the sacrament of marriage, there are all sorts of impediments uh, that that uh, prevent a, a marriage, uh, a putative marriage, as we say, suppose was thought valid. They prevent a marriage from actually being uh, being valid. For in the obvious one of divine law uh, that we had uh, in the gospel um, yesterday, right? Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. So uh, that is an invalid marriage because the Lord Himself said it, right? And it's it's natural law as well. So. Um, uh, so we, uh, we obviously can't dispense from that, but that's something that prevents a marriage from being valid. So um, um, there would be other, uh, other impediments of ecclesiastical, of ecclesiastical law that would prevent a marriage from being valid. So you have divine law, whoever divorces his wife marries another commits adultery, that's divine law, we can't touch that, that's that, we leave that alone. Um, but suppose this happens all the time, Suppose um, a Catholic marries a Jewish person, um, you know, in a, in a uh, I'll use the example from my own family. My, my, uh, my sister married her Jewish husband um, in a bird sanctuary at uh, Nantucket. Uh, they, they had problems with his family. His family didn't want him marrying a Catholic, and there were other things going on. So I, you know, I had said, and you'll see soon, um, you know, we can get all sorts of dispensations, and we do this and the other thing. You can have a totally Jewish ceremony. We'll have an armed guard keeping all Catholics away, you know, whatever. Uh, but I need to get the dispensation, you know. But uh, because of the problems with his family, they just said, oh, the heck with all of it. And they got married um, with a, um, some fly-by-night Protestant minister on uh, uh, Nantucket in, in the bird sanctuary. And they have beautiful pictures of, you know, I wasn't there. You know. um, that's invalid, you know. And um, the... Um, the good news is 
she convalidated the marriage just before she died. So, uh, um, but it was that's invalid because a Catholic marrying an unbaptized person uh, by ecclesiastical law that's invalid. It's not divine law. It's ecclesiastical law, and it's and we're going to get into that later. It's it's there for a very good reason, um, but it's it makes marriage invalid. You can get a dispensation for a Catholic to marry an unbaptized person if certain requirements uh, are fulfilled, which we will get to when we get to that particular topic. Right? So that's what dispensations are all about. So you'll be doing this all the time. Uh, a dispensation for a Catholic to marry an unbaptized person, a dispensation for a Catholic to marry uh, a non-Catholic, whether baptized or not baptized, uh, in a non-Catholic ceremony. You need a dispensation for that as well. A Catholic is required for validity to be married in a Catholic ceremony. So, uh, but you can dispense because it's ecclesiastical law. Okay? So dispensations. Uh, the concept, first of all, if you, if you can uh, be helpful if you can memorize this definition, but at least re remember what it is. Canon 85, very important canon. Canon 85, uh, page 129 if you have the green book. Uh, a, a dispensation or the relaxation of a merely ecclesiastical law in a particular case can be granted by those who possess executive power within the limits of their competence, as well as by those who have the power to dispense explicitly or implicitly, either by the law itself or by legitimate delegation. So the, um, the important thing is that it, it involves an ecclesiastical law, and it, and it emphasizes here, again, merely ecclesiastical law, to make the point. We're not talking about divine law, we're talking about merely ecclesiastical law, laws uh, that, that are made up by human beings. Um, a dispensation or the relaxation of a merely ecclesiastical law in a particular case. Okay, so, uh, it, in other words, um, if a if Pope Francis, uh, and he might, he could do this. Um, there's been talk about it. Oh, guys, um, Zoom guys, <laughs> Zoom, Zoom guys. Um, how far can I walk before you stop seeing me? The blue towel, whatever that is. Nice to you. You're not here. Oh, you're right. Oh, go back a little. Where my hand is now. Can you see me? Can you see me? No. So back about a foot, a foot the other way. Can you see oh, my hand? The, yeah, right there. Yes. Can you see my hand here? Okay. All right. So I can't go past that. Okay. All right. Um, and can you? Um, the good doctor tells me I have to keep walking, otherwise uh, my arthritis is going <laughs> to stiffen me up. So can you see me here? <laughs> can you guys no, see me? No. You can't see me in front. Correct. Oh boy. Um, where can you see me? Move the camera. Right there. Now we can see this. This is it? Yep. Oh, gee. Uh, I've got to walk. It's going to be two and a half hours. Um, uh, yeah, but I, I, no, I'm going to, but I'm going to go to, like, here. Okay. Well, unless you're, unless you're writing, we, we can, can hear you. you. That's... Can you see me now? Yes. Yeah. So tell me when it stops. We can adjust, right, the, we can adjust the screen. We can just yeah. move, the, so move, the the TV. Yeah. Yeah. move the TV. Move the TV. You can't see this into you. Yeah, just walk around. Don't worry. No, don't be this All right. That's it. All right, we'll figure it out at the break. All right, because I'm going to keep moving. So um, anyway, um, the um, where was I? The um, 
The relaxation of the law in a particular, of um, merely ecclesiastical law in a particular case. So, um, in other words, uh, the, the bishop of the diocese, if he, uh, uh, this is what I'm going to say, if Pope Francis, I ju so I just mentioned an ecclesiastical law, which is that for validity, a Catholic, um, uh, uh, well, any one of those, either one of those, I can see him dispense, uh, getting rid of. But say uh, for validity, uh, um, it, say it is invalid for a Catholic to marry an unbaptized person, right? That's by ecclesiastical law. That, that is invalid. Um, but you can dispense from that, all right? Um, suppose Pope Francis decided to get rid of that law, and there's been some discussion that he might, you know? Um, uh, so suppose he were to say, from now on, it doesn't matter. Uh, a Catholic can marry anybody of any denomination. It's, it's valid as far as we're concerned, all right? Suppose he were to decide to, he were deci to, decide to get rid of that law, which he could do because it's a merely ecclesiastical law. You know, I, I particularly would not be in favor of it for, for many good reasons, but suppose, suppose he did. That would be a change in the law. That would not be a dispensation, okay? A dispensation is a relaxation of the law in a particular case. So it's one thing just to change the law for everybody. That's just a new law or getting rid of a law. Uh, it's another thing to say, uh, yes, this, this law uh, means that uh, in this particular situation, the marriage would be invalid, but I can dispense from that law in your case, just for in your case. So it's a relaxation of a merely ecclesiastical law in a particular case, right? And it's done by means of a rescript. You, uh, you write to the, uh, uh, the bishop of the diocese or his delegate uh, uh, submitting a petition, and then you, you get back the, uh, uh, the dispensation, the rescript, okay? So a dispensation, relaxation of the merely ecclesiastical law in a particular case, who can grant it? It can be granted by those who possess executive power within the limits of their competence. So um, the bishop in his own diocese, of course, has executive power. The, um, the vicar general in a diocese has executive power. But the vicar general of the Archdiocese of New York cannot grant a dispensation for somebody for something in the diocese of, uh, of Bridgeport, okay, because it's not within the limits of his competence. Okay? So within the limits of his competence, okay, uh, someone who has executive power, uh, and we're going to see who has what kind of power uh, later on, um, someone who has executive power can grant a dispensation. Okay? So um, as opposed to legislative power, we're talking about executive power. Okay? All right. <clears throat> um, and also the law itself might grant somebody the power to dispense, um, or a person could be legitimately delegated. That's another thing. The, um, uh, the, the bishop of the diocese is the one who can dispense. He can, um, and, he, and by, by law itself, it's delegated to the vicar general. Uh, but um, one of them might decide to further delegate it to someone else. That's, that's happened to me, for instance. Um, uh, as a judge in a tribunal, I have judicial power. I do not have executive power. But I, I, uh, it's happened to me a few times that I've been, you know, in the building where these things happen, and somebody's on vacation. You know, so the uh, in the Archdiocese of New York, for instance, it's uh, the power to dispense is delegated 
to a, um, to a vice chancellor, uh, uh, to, to, uh, to fa uh, Father Doug Mavis, probably some of you know who he is. Um, he can grant all sorts of dispensations and things. So that's been delegated to him. Once in a while, he's gone on vacation, and he's delegated it to somebody else. You know, um, when I uh, when I was going down to Lake Charles, um, I told you about that, right? When I go down to Lake Charles. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When I was going down to Lake Charles, it's a small diocese, so I was the judicial vicar with judicial power. But there's so few guys working in the offices of the diocese that when it came, when there was a need for a dispensation of the type I'm talking about. Um, I was delegated to do that as well. You kind of do any anything canonical that needs to be done. You know, we ended up doing. You know, so um, uh, so it can be delegated. But but normally it belongs to someone who, who has executive power. But that would be the bishop first, right? The and then he could delegate the to whoever he wants after that. Right. Yeah. Within certain limits, but uh, uh, by the law itself, we'll see later. By the law itself, it's delegated to the vicar general. Um, but uh, they can further delegate it to other people, which they do all the time. Um, Canon 86, Canon 85, you really need to know, Canon 86 kind of explains it. Laws are, are not subject to dispensation to the extent that they define those things which are essentially constitutive of juridic institutes or acts. So um, we, we will see uh, in a few weeks that, that marriage uh, is a union between a man and a woman uh, in which in which they uh, they commit themselves to uh, 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 to permanence, fidelity, and the um, and openness to uh, the possibility of offspring. Right? Um, a bishop cannot dispense from that. He cannot say, uh, I, um, "I'm going to allow you to get married, and I, I'm going to dispense from the obligation to be faithful." Okay, you can get married, but you can fool around with whoever you want. Uh, I will dispense from that. No, that. Because that, that's not what marriage is. It's, you're dispensing from something that's constitutive of, of, of marriage. Okay? So, um, okay. uh, Canon 87, um, we, we've seen this kind of in, a, in another form. Um, Canon 87, a diocesan bishop, <coughs> whenever he judges that it contributes to their spiritual good, is able to dispense the faithful from universal and particular disciplinary laws issued for his territory or his subjects by the supreme authority of the church. He is not able to dispense over from procedural or penal laws nor from those whose dispensation is specially reserved to the apostolic see or some other authority. And if recourse to the Holy See is difficult and at the same time there is danger of great harm and delay, any ordinary is able to dispense from these same laws even if dispensation is reserved to the Holy See provided that it concerns the dispensation which the Holy See is accustomed to grant under the same circumstances without prejudice to the prescript of Canon 291. So what, is he, what are they talking about here? The main thing you need to know is um, you have um, laws that are in effect for the whole church or that might be in effect for a whole diocese. Um, the, the diocesan bishop can dispense from those laws. Okay? And I just mentioned a couple of them. Right? Um, the, re the requirement for a Catholic to, uh, uh, to marry a, a baptized person, or the requirement for a Catholic to be married in a Catholic ceremony. He can dispense from that uh, if uh, he judges that it, it is, uh, f that it contributes to the spiritual good of the faithful. And it would in the case of either one of those scenarios, because 
if you don't give them the dispensation, they're going to go get married outside of the church and be living in sin. So uh, you want to grab the dispensation if you can. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes there are reasons not to. Um, and then these other things, uh, you can't dispense from penal laws and things like that. Don't worry about that. The, 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 the procedural laws, how a tribunal operates and so forth, those have their own sets of laws. But, but basic, basic disciplinary laws. Um, the, uh, we mentioned already uh, abstinence on a Friday in Lent, you know, if it's uh, St. Patrick's Day or whatever. He can dispense from all of these disciplinary laws, okay, whether they're his own disciplinary laws for his own diocese or they're universal. Um, okay, so that's the important thing to know from Canon 87. Um, Canon 88, uh, just obviously he can dispense from diocesan laws. Right? Um, uh, Canon, um, Canon 89, very important for all of us to know, a pastor and other presbyters or deacons are not able to dispense from universal and particular laws unless his power has been express, expressly granted to them. Okay. You know, it happens every once in a while. Um, a pastor will say to his, uh, uh, either his whole parish or he'll say to certain people in his parish, I dispense you from the, uh, uh, the, the, the fast on Ash Wednesday or something like that. I, I'm dispensing you. you know? Well, no, you can't. He doesn't really have the authority to do that. Um, it might happen in that particular case that a person um, is, is too ill or something to, to follow follow the fast, so they're dispensed by the law itself, but the pastor himself can't dispense, and you as a deacon cannot dispense, or a priest, you cannot, cannot dispense. Okay? Um, my father told me the story of um, the days when um, the, the fast and abstinence in Lent was really serious. You, know? um, you, had to, uh, you had to fast every day during Lent except for Sundays, uh, if you were uh, over uh, 21, the age of 21. I think it was 21, yeah. Um, and he, he told the story about, um, he went to St. Peter's College in Jersey City, and he told the story about a Jesuit, um, this, now these are the days, this was back before I was born, so this is the, the 40s, right, right after World War II. Those are the days when, you know, as we say, men were men and Jesuits were Jesuits, you know, Jesuits were real Jesuits, you know, and they were really impressive, the, the way he described them back then, you know. But he, he told the story about, um, a, a, one of his Jesuit professors uh, coming into the class, and they all wore their cassocks back then, and so on and so forth. Uh, he came into the class uh, at the beginning of Lent, and he began the class by saying, you're all dispensed from uh, the Lenten fast, um, because I'm going to give you so much work, and you have so much to do here uh, going to college that uh, uh, it's, 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 it's not something that, uh, that makes sense for you. you know? He had a good reason for doing it, but he didn't have the authority to do it, unless somebody had delegated it to him. So be, be, uh, be careful of that, of just willy-nilly dispensing people. More often than not, it's just a matter of common sense. Uh, we get this in confession all the time. That, uh, somebody says, you know, Father, I, you know, I, I, I can't get to Mass on Sunday because I, I have this, um, this, this job that requires me to, to be working on, on Sunday, and um, it's, uh, you know, maybe a nurse or a doctor or somebody who uh, uh, has, has a, um, you know, a sh long shifts on Saturday and Sunday, and there's no possibility of getting to, um, to Mass, um, well, you know, you do what you can, but uh, no, no one has helped to be impossible in a case like that, you know. But the law itself would say, um, you know, you're not held to be impossible, so you don't have to go. But, but a priest couldn't dispense a person from going to Sunday Mass in that sense. Okay. 
As a matter of fact, Cardinal Dolan himself pointed out, you know, this whole business about dispensing people from the Sunday obligation during COVID. Um, have, you, have you guys followed his, uh, his Zoom conferences? No, no we're not invited to those. He has some very enlightening things to say. He's a, he's a bright, bright boy. Uh, he said some very enlightening things to say, and he pointed out that you know the, the bishops cannot dispense from the Sunday obligation. You know, uh, so this this business about uh, uh, the archdiocese of New York or the diocese of Brooklyn or the diocese of Hartford or the diocese of Bridgeport, whatever, <coughs> announcing uh, Catholics are dispensed from the Sunday obligation. No, you're not. It's, uh, it, it's a practical matter that you can't fulfill it because, uh, for, because of health considerations. But the, um, the, the bishop himself cannot dispense you from the Sunday obligation. And why would that be? As Cardinal Dolan explained it? Divine law. It's divine law. Right? <laughs> right? So you keep holy the Lord's Day. So the bishop, who do they, and he was saying this, who do we think we are? We can't dispense from divine law. You know? <clears throat> So it was a very uh, insightful uh, comment that he had on that. So technically, the bishops were not dispensing uh, from, uh, uh, from, from divine law. But they were saying, as a practical matter, um, we're not going to have mass for you because it's too dangerous. So, so he, he can't go. Uh, and, and so you know, you're, you're, you're obviously not held to that when it's impossible to do it. Right? See the difference? You sure? You look, 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 look a little puzzled. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so the bishops, Cardinal Dolan was pointing out, the bishops are not as powerful as they think they are. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, Canon 90 also. One is not uh, to be dispensed from an ecclesiastical law without a just and reasonable cause. After taking into account the circumstances of the case and the gravity of the law from which dispensation is given, otherwise the dispensation is illicit, and unless it is given by the legislator himself or his superior, also invalid. Um, in case of a doubt, this is important also, concerning the sufficiency of the cause, a dispensation is granted validly and licitly. So you'll find, unless things change radically, and they're kind of changing as, as I'm speaking, but um, you'll find if you're in a busy parish that you'll be um, sending in petitions for a lot of dispensations. For, you know, if, you, if you're, it's a busy parish, you're doing a lot of weddings. You'll be sending in a lot of um, petitions for dispensations. You have to be very careful that you're just kind of not doing this automatically. Okay? That uh, you need um, uh, a just and reasonable cause. And you'll see the forms themselves that you use for uh, submitting the um, the petition for a dispensation, they ask you for reasons, you know? It's not just, you know, Joe Schmo wants to marry uh, Rachel, whoever. Um, he's Catholic, she's, she's Jewish, and uh, so give us a dispensation. You know, the law itself says, well, no, because it's invalid. Is there a reason for it? You have to explain what the reason is. And the reason very often, I mean, there'd be several reasons. Uh, you know, family harmony, danger of an invalid marriage because they might run off to uh, uh, a non-Catholic minister or, or rabbi or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, the, 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 and just preserving the faith of the, uh, the Catholic party. But there would have to be reasons for it. Just, there has to be a just and reasonable cause 
for granting the dispensation. Otherwise, it's illicit. Okay? Um, but then it goes on to say, if there's a doubt about the sufficiency of the cause, it is uh, valid and illicit. Right? So don't get scrupulous about these things. But there has to be a reason for it. And we'll, we will see as we get into these things, um, this is where your, um, your pastoral skills as a, as a deacon or a priest would, would come in. Because you, you're working with a couple, and you have to help them to uh, really to assess the, um, the, the situation. You know, okay, you come from a, a, a Catholic family, you come from a Jewish family. Is this going to work? Or is one of you going to have to give up your, your, your faith? You know, is this going to work? And you have to have that talk with them. You know, um, and sometimes people realize that well, it's not going to work, and then they, they don't do it. But um, so it, this is more a pastoral matter than anything else. But it's this this canon is reminding us that, that you you have to use your pastoral skills here. You you don't just do these things automatically. Okay? Otherwise, there's no point. Father. Yes. I could you explain paragraph two again in case of doubt. I don't. I didn't understand that. Yeah, in other words, right. If you're too, don't get too scrupulous about this. Is what it's saying. So if you are, you're working with a couple, and uh, they say, say it's a Catholic and a Presbyterian, okay, uh, and baptized Presbyterian, that would not be invalid uh, on the basis of the lack of baptism, but it would be invalid if they want to get married in the Presbyterian church, right? So you're not sure if this is a good idea or not. But there's certain reasons uh, why it might be a good idea. So um, one of them is that if, if you don't give them permission, they're going to marry in the, in the uh, if you don't get the dispensation, they'll get married in the Presbyterian church anyway. It will be an invalid marriage. So that would be a good reason. But also, again, preserving the faith of both parties, family harmony, whatever it might be. So uh, you have your doubts. Uh, you're not sure if the, the cause, the reason that you're presenting, the cause that you're presenting for the dispensation is sufficient, but you present it anyway, um, and it's granted. And the law is saying, don't worry about it. All right, you you uh, address the matter as best you could. Uh, you had your you had your doubts about the um, sufficiency of the cause, but the uh, the dispensation is granted anyway by the by the whoever does it, the bishop or whoever, and so it's valid and it's licit. Okay. In other words, you can't just say. Uh, you know, these two people are getting married. Uh, Your, Your Excellency, give me a dispensation. You know, no, you have to explain why. Okay. The question of whether or not the, the reasons you present are sufficient, um, the law is saying don't worry about that. You know, that's that's really up to the bishop. Maybe the bishop himself has doubts about whether or not he should do it, but it's telling even the bishop um, if he has doubts about the uh, the sufficiency of the cause. Never, but he grants the dispensation anyway, uh, then it's valid and listed. Okay? Just get a reason. Have, you know, have some kind of a reason that makes some kind of sense. Okay? Um, Canon 91, um, the appropriate subjects, even when outside his territory, one who possesses the power to dispense is able to exercise it with respect to his subjects, even though they are absent from the territory. And unless the contrary is expressly established also with respect to travelers actually present in the territory as well as with respect to himself. So say, um, you know, um, Mary Jones uh, from uh, the, the Diocese of Bridgeport is traveling in Arizona and she wants to get married in Arizona. 
and she, um, but she lives, uh, she lives in, in the Diocese of Bridgeport. She asks uh, Bishop Caggiano, whoever it is, um, the, just the local priest from her own parish in Bridgeport, who then uh, submits the, re the petition to the Chancery Office. Uh, she asks for dispensation from, from form, say, uh, so she can be married in a non-Catholic ceremony in, um, in Tucson, Arizona, or something like that. Um, he can grant that, all right? So, um, uh, and, and say furthermore, that he is out, he's uh, the person who's granting it. Um, say it's a, a, a chancellor, say it's the chancellor of Bridgeport or a vice chancellor, whoever grants these things. Say that person is on vacation, but is doing all this stuff by email, right? So no one is actually in Bridgeport. Doesn't matter. It says that uh, they're both outside the tor territory, but if the person possesses the power to dispense, he can exercise it with, re with respect to his subjects, even though. They are absent from the territory, um, and um, and and also when he's outside his territory. Okay, so this isn't—you don't have to be physically present for this to happen, as long as you are the subject of the person who's granting the dispensation. Okay, uh, a, a bishop, say, going on a pilgrimage, uh, with you know, to uh, to Rome, say, you know, um, uh, and it's. I don't know, somebody needs a dispensation from something or other. Uh, he's outside of his diocese. Everybody's outside of their own diocese. He can grant dispensation uh, because he has authority over his subjects. Okay? Is that fairly clear? Um, Canon 92, is, a dispensation is subject to a strict interpretation, according to the norm of Canon 36. Um, in other words, it's only what it says. You can't expand the dispensation. So. If, if a bishop uh, or a chancellor, or vice chancellor, whatever, grants a dispensation for this couple here to uh, to get uh, uh, get married in a non-Catholic ceremony, it only applies to that couple. Uh, it only applies to that couple. You know, um, they can't take that and apply it to, say, the bride's uh, sister who happens to be getting married uh, on the same day or something. You know, it's it's only it's a strict interpretation. Only what it says. It's only this dispensation from this law. Granted for these people, and usually on such and such a date. Okay, and that's a strict interpretation. Um, don't worry about Canon 93. Okay. All right. So is that fairly clear about dispensations? Okay. We're skipping 94, 95. You can skip those. Now, uh, Title VI: Physical and Juridic Persons. Uh, there are two types of persons. There are, are physical and juridic persons. So everyone in this class is a physical person. The seminary itself is a juridic person. Right? The, 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 the Archdiocese of New York is a juridic person. But each person in it is a physical person. Okay? So Canon 96, how does one become a person in the church? This is a great question for exams. How does a person become a person in the church? Uh, Canon 96 says, by baptism, that's the key. By baptism, one is incorporated into the Church of Christ and is constituted a person in it. You become a person in the church through baptism with the duties and rights which are proper to Christians in keeping with their condition insofar as they are in ecclesiastical communion and unless a legitimately issued sanction stands in the way. What you need to know about that is baptism, okay? Make sure a person in the church. If you are 
Um, and this affects all sorts of things. If you are um, a non-Catholic, you have a great love for the Catholic Church, uh, it doesn't matter, you know, and say you're not baptized to make it, keep it simple. Um, it doesn't matter, you are not a person in the church. You do not have recognized standing in the church, okay? By baptism, you become a person in the church, okay? Is that clear? Because that, um, that's, an, that's an easy, quick, short answer uh, on an exam, okay? So, so Bob, I'm yes. a, a Baptist Christian, recognized, so I came as a Presbyterian and converted. So am I, when I was a Presbyterian, as a baptized Presbyterian, am I recognized by the church? Um, yeah, so, um, uh, well, you can, you, um, we don't have time to get into it too much. To a certain extent, yes. Uh, for instance, the question about whether or not uh, a marriage is a sacrament. So if a Presbyterian marries a Catholic uh, and it's otherwise valid, that is a sacrament, as opposed to an, an, uh, an unbaptized person marrying a Catholic. Um, but um, the, um, it's, if, you, if you look on the commentary on page 141, at the bottom uh, of, of the left-hand column, the, um, the, the very beginning there, it says, baptism constitutes the juridic basis for making one a person in the Catholic Church. Okay, um, so, um, but it does make certain provisions for concessions to non-Catholics, you know. Um, uh, so. I remember one of my other classes, they said that the Catholic Church recognizes other uh, baptisms when a person converts over. Oh yeah, we recognize the baptism. There's no question that the person, you know, would be, you know, like a, what were you a Presbyterian, did you say? Yes. Yeah. So no question that the marriage was valid, unless you had a, you know, a minister who's cr as crazy as some of the ministers we've encountered in the Catholic Church. But um, but we presume it's valid, right? Um, you know, I myself, I mean, my the oldest of my three sisters, was um, baptized uh, uh, in the Lutheran Church, and in those days, you, uh, when we came, in, my parents and and then the two of us came into the Catholic Church. Uh, we had to be conditionally baptized. Uh, now that wouldn't happen, right? You're just accepting the, the Lutheran baptism. Right? So, um, but there are certain uh, situations where, um, well, it's, it's, it's complicated, and it, de it depends on, on, on particular situations. The basic rule is, though, uh, when we're talking about ecclesiastical laws, we're talking about laws that apply to Catholics, right? So this is all about Catholics. Um, we don't, make, we don't make ecclesiastical laws for non-Catholics. They're not bound by ecclesiastical laws, generally speaking. So, um, so the rights, responsibilities, et cetera, we're talking about Catholics. In particular situations, there might be, it might be a case where um, a, a non-Catholic would, would have some kind of recognition uh, in the law. But, but basically, it's for, not, it's, it's for, it's for Catholics. Okay. Um, okay. Um, Um, age is very important. Um, a person who has completed the uh, Canon 97, a person who has completed the 18th year of age has reached majority. Below this age, a person is a minor. So similar to civil law in most states, maybe all states, 18 makes you uh, an adult in the church. Now, uh, in the church, a minor before the completion of the seventh year is called an infant and is considered not responsible for oneself, non sui compos. 
With the completion of the seventh year, however, minors presumed to have the use of reason. Okay, so even though a person is a minor, we make a distinction at the age of seven. And once a person is, is seven years old, we presume they have the use of reason, so they can make their first Holy communion and all those kinds of things, okay? So, um, but uh, an infant not, con not responsible for oneself, that's a great, um, that's a great phrase in Latin, non sui compos. Not can you see it? Can you see it? No. Well, it's right in front of you. Okay? It's, it's, right, in it's right in front of it's you. It's in the book. Um, canon 97, number two. A uh, person not responsible for oneself, known sui compos. Okay? It's a great phrase. It applies to infants, that is, uh, persons under the age of seven, but it can apply to, to a person who's mentally ill, uh, something like that, a person with dementia, something like that. Okay? Canon 98, a person who has reached majority has the full exercise of his or her rights, okay? Age 18, you have the full exercise of your rights, okay? Um, now, uh, a minor, that's 98, number one, a minor, number two, a minor in the exercise of his or her rights remains subject to the authority of parents or guardians except in those matters in which minors are exempted from their authority by divine law or canon law. Um, and in regard to the uh, appointment of guardians and their authority, the prescripts of civil law are to be observed unless canon law provides otherwise, et cetera. And we don't have to get into that in any detail, but basically um, a minor, um, that is a person um, under the age of 18, remains subject to the authority of parents or guardians, except in certain cases that would, would come up in canon law itself. Okay. Canon 99, I just mentioned this, Whoever habitually lacks the use of reason is considered not responsible for oneself, known sui compost, and is equated with infants. Canon 99. Okay. Now, Canon 100, we always we already looked at, right? Uh, we're talking about um, residents, temporary residents, domicile, quasi domicile, etc. Right? So any questions on that? Canon 100, person said to be a resident, inkula, a place of person as a domicile. Temporary resident, advina, in place of the person as a quasi-domicile, traveler, peregrinus, the person is outside the place of the domicile or quasi-domicile, which they still retain, or a transient of vagus, right? Remember that term, vagus, if the person does not have a domicile or quasi-domicile anywhere, right? We went over all that, okay? I think that's fairly clear. Um, for children, um, the place of origin of a child, um, uh, even of a neophyte, uh, that's a, a convert, um, um, is that in which the parents had a, domi had a domicile, uh, or lacking that, a quasi-domicile when the child was born. If the parents did not have the same domicile or quasi-domicile, that of the mother. So the place of origin of the child, where the parents lived when the child was born, domicile, uh, or at least a quasi-domicile, um, if the parents were separated, whatever, then the Domicile, quasi-domicile of the mother. Um, in the case of a child of transients, the place of origin is the actual place of birth. In the case of an abandoned child, is the place where the child was found. So you need to know all that when you're recording baptisms. Okay. Canon 101. Okay. All right, domicile, we don't have to get into that again, right? You know what domicile is, right? Canon 102, okay. Quasi-domicile. Canon 103, you don't need to know because you're not religious. 
Um, canon 104, spouses are going to have a common domicile or quasi-domicile uh, by reason of legitimate separation or some other just cause. They can have separate uh, domicile and quasi-domicile. Basically, spouses are to have the same domicile or quasi-domicile. Right? A minor, canon 105, a minor necessarily retains the domicile and quasi-domicile of the one to whose power the minor is subject. Right, the parent or the or the uh, uh, the guardian, a minor who is no longer an infant, so over the age of seven, can also acquire a quasi domicile of one's own. A minor who is legitimately emancipated according to the Norman civil law can also acquire a domicile of one's own. So, uh, the minor the uh, the minor uh, has the same domicile and quasi domicile as the parents or the mother, whoever that or the guardian, whoever. Uh, the person persons are to whom that uh, the minor is subject, but if, he, if the minor is over the age of seven, say the minor goes away to a uh, boarding school, you know, uh, that minor would then have a quasi domicile at the boarding school. Right? Um, and sometimes uh, in civil law, a minor can be emancipated, and then they can even have their own domicile. Okay? Canon 105. Um, canon 106, domicile and quasi-domicile are lost by departure from place with the intention of not returning. Okay, that's obvious. And canon 107, through, um, through both domicile and quasi-domicile, each person acquires his or her pastor and ordinary. Okay, so your pastor, uh, your ordinary is the place where you have a domicile or a quasi-domicile. Um, the proper pastor ordinary or ordinary of a transient um, the vagus is the pastor or local ordinary where the transient is actually residing. And the proper pastor of one who has only a diocesan domicile or quasi-domicile is the pastor of the place where the person is actually residing. That could happen if the person is moving around within a diocese. Uh, maybe there's a mobile home in a diocese. I, I um, saw something in the news the other day about uh, these are, aren't mobile homes, but they're Airbnbs, and they were, they were like, I think they were, they were like, small trailers or something, um, or maybe even smaller vehicles than that, that they were parking around where my parish is, uh, down in the, uh, the East Village. Um, so a person could have one of those and kind of be moving around within a diocese and never actually stay in one parish long enough to have uh, a quasi-domicile in a parish, but the person has a diocesan domicile. The person like stays in Manhattan the whole time, something like that. Father, yes. Uh, sorry to. Chris, sure. You're you're flying through these, and I'm having yeah. a tough time keeping notes. How are we going to be responsible for these? Because I'm right. on a really difficult time understanding how to how am I capturing notes or reading or yeah uh, don't yeah first of all anything I tell you to skip you skip all right yeah that's easy I got okay. the skip part back then when we get like these we're right. right now yeah then when we get to a particular. Uh, uh, I'll emphasize what you need to know, basically, when I talk about it, okay? When you say a good exam question, that's when I really should care Pardon? the most. Pardon? Sorry? When you say be a good exam question, that's when we should care the most about. Yeah, <laughs> but that, that, that was, that's just a nice, nifty question, you know? Um, the one I just yeah, mentioned... It's going so quick, I can't keep up with all the, the writing. Yeah, so that's just... the nature of the course, unfortunately, because we have so much material to cover. That's why uh, we need more than one course, but... Uh, 
you know, we, we, okay. deal, we deal with what we can deal with, you know, so. Um, no, I just want to make sure I'm covered now and not worrying about the two million, six weeks from now. Yeah, you don't have to, like, you don't have to memorize these canons, right? You don't have to, like, memorize canon 107. You know, 107 is, you know, um, it helps if you read them over. Uh, that's the reading for this course, is basically to read the canons and then read the commentaries and kind of let it sink in, you know, um, the notes from class and so forth, and let it sink in. Uh, with a view to applying all this stuff when you when you get ordained, you know that's basically uh, what we're doing. Um, the 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 exams themselves will be open book, okay? So um, uh, which is a common practice in canon law because um, uh, you know it's a big book. You know the basic law, but you don't know the fine point of it, and that's okay. You can find you know where the you know where the the canon is. You go and find it, and you know. And, and that's that. Okay. Right? Yeah. I'm sorry. We, I'm sorry we can't go more slowly, but that's the nature of the course, you know. Uh, no, I, just, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm capturing notes correctly. That's yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't you know? Don't worry about it too much. Just try to get the substance of these things. You know, I'm not going to ask you trick questions. You know, um, uh, in that sense, you know, where where you know some uh, some reference, you know, to another canon at the end of one canon, so, you know, so I wouldn't do that, but I want you to know the, the substance of the canon. I want you to know how to apply that canon, okay? Don't forget what, what my job is, it, uh, is to prepare, prepare you guys to be deacons, and I don't want to get in trouble because you guys don't know your, your canon law, okay? So uh, I, I'm, I'm giving you, you know, as best I can under the circumstances, what, um, you know, I, I think you need to be able to um, to function uh, as best you can as uh, as deacons. But but feel free to ask questions. You know, if there's any confusion about about anything. You know. Oh, Father, on on the same line, you said that the exams are open book, which yeah. is great. Um, when we take the exam, are you going to give it to us like on a day and say return it to you in two days or something like that, or are we just going to try to cram for two hours? I mean, what, what's the format? For, well, you have to study for the exam. Oh, of course. No, no, no question. No, I'm going to say to you, are you going to give us the exam and give us, you know, more than two hours to do it? Is it a take-home exam? That's what he's asking. Uh, yeah. No. Um, well, we'll see because of Zoom. I mean, I've, I've gone both ways. Um, uh, what I've done in the past, well, when I had just Zoom, I ended up giving uh, ju just take-homes. But, uh, but since then, I've realized... Um, Talking to other professors, you can you can take a Zoom um, exam by Zoom. I mean, I'll just I just send you an email, you know, um, uh, uh, or post it. However, we post it on the on Popoli. Uh, you can do that the same way as you would uh, an in-person exam with the same time limits, you know. So the midterm would be an hour, and the final would be two hours. But the final might end up being a take-home. I'm not sure. Okay, we'll see. Yeah, it, it, it just seems, given everything you've said so far about the law, yeah. and the first thing a canon lawyer would do, or a deacon would do, is go back to the law, look at it, study it, right. read the commentary, understand it. Right. It would seem to put the constraint of an hour to try right. to come up with the answer would be difficult. Now, again, I, I haven't taken the exam, so I don't know, but... But it just seems that if, if, a lot of material. Life, yeah. if in real life the process is going to be 
I'll get back to you. Let me check on that, mm-hmm. and I'll get back to you with a firm answer. I right. just seem, I, I don't know. To me, it just seems it's a mixture, but we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll think about it because it, it's worked. It's worked both ways. It's worked fine both ways. You know, uh, the kinds of questions I would ask. Uh, you know, typically I would have a combination of short answers and then case cases, right? Um, and the uh, the short answers would be things that if you studied the canons you should really just have at your fingertips. You shouldn't need to, this is important. Now, I, you know, now that I've said open book, I have to add a, a heavy caveat to that um, because uh, this has happened with guys in the past where they said, oh, it's open book, I don't have to worry. <laughs> and then they failed the exam because they don't have a clue what they're doing, they didn't study, and they failed the exam. You, know? um, you, you, basically, ha- you basically have to have read the canons well and studied them well, you know? So you know, first of all, where they are, <laughs> where to find something. You know the basics of, of uh, basically what the law says. I'm not gonna ask you a lot of esoteric questions. I'm gonna ask you uh, basic kinds of questions that, that you should really know off the top of your head. I remember, uh, as a matter of fact, I, sh- I, I showed the um, part of an exam that I was preparing for, I know whether it was the deacons last year, the master's class last year, or it was, I think it might have been for the seminarians. And the first part of it was uh, um, short answers. And I showed it to uh, a lay person who was uh, working in the, in the rectory. And she said, oh, this is obvious, you know? And she said, yeah, I mean, it was pre- pretty straightforward stuff. And she, you know, she, I think she went through the first 10 questions and got them all right, you know? So um, it's, not, it's not esoteric uh, types of things that you're gonna be uh, asked. And that, that, I mean, this is the way exams, this is the way I took exams, this is the way exams have been given here for lo these many decades, you know, um, before Zoom, that's the, that's the problem. Um, they're, you know, they're given in class a certain period of time. And in the case of uh, canon law, a good part of it is, uh, it's, it's just objective answers, you know. Um, you know, what is the age uh, when, when you become, what is the age of majority in canon law? You shouldn't have to, you know, look it up and, and all that kind of stuff, you know? I mean, you should know now. It's 18, right? I just told you, you know? It's fairly simple, you know? Um, you know, um, what, by now you should know what it means to have a domicile or a quasi-domicile. We've talked about it so much, you know, those kinds of things, you know? Uh, other things maybe we didn't talk about that much, but you would know because you studied basically where they are and basically what they say. You might want to double-check something, you know? But I've watched, you know, I've, I've seen... Um, when I've given these exams, I've watched people sit down. Some guys will uh, will open the exam book. They'll have their, their canon law book there um, closed, and they will re- read read the questions. They'll write the answers. They'll be finished, you know, in a pretty uh, short period of time. Other guys, I know, I'll, I'll watch them. I'll say, we got a problem here. Question one, you know. And then they're looking. They're looking in the um, in in the index, and um, and I've um, you know I've I've asked questions that um, were pretty straightforward, but guys hadn't studied, and so they would they would look it up in the index, and then they would go to another canon in a different part of the code that I hadn't even talked about, um, and 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 they would they would get it wrong, you know. So uh, you have to have studied the canons, okay? And basically, you should you know I said open book. Don't, that's a fool's paradise, all right? If, if you think you can't study, you're gonna fail, okay? So um, I don't have a lot of reading, you know? You just have the canons uh, and, and commentary to help you understand the canons, your notes, 
That's all. I'm not asking you to read, you know, 50 pages a week or 100 pages a week, whatever it is. And there are no, um, uh, there, there are no um, uh, research papers or anything else. But you've got to know the canons, all right? You've got to know the canons. This comes, I've told you, I have my marching orders from bishops and, and others. You have got to know the canons. This is the big criticism that pastors have of deacons. They don't know canon law, you know? I had a, a, a course, I taught this course a few years ago, and there was a, um, a, a guy studying for the diaconate who was very bright, um, but he didn't have a mind for canon law, you know? And he, I forget where he failed, of course, he came close to failing, but it, it was touch and go, you know? And I had questions about his suitability to be a deacon because he didn't seem to be able to get it and be able to apply it, you know? And at the end of the course, when people were, um, were writing their evaluations of the course of students, he, uh, he complained that I was just sticking to the, the canons and I wasn't giving people uh, the opportunity to be more creative and that kind of thing. No, you've got to know these canons. You've got to know them, you know? Because we're talking, uh, I mean, it's no joke. You will be representing the church. You will be uh, charged with protecting people's rights. If you mess up, this is, we are just talking about lawsuits at the beginning of the class, you know, this is, this is the era of, of lawsuits. Um, you know, you can get yourself and, 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 and uh, your parish and your diocese in a lot of trouble. So you need to know these canons. Okay? You need to, the ones that I'm telling you to know, you need to know them and study them thoroughly. The other ones that I tell you to skip, um, you know, don't worry about for now. You know? But you need to know them. You need to know the basic structure of the parts of the code that we are dealing with uh, so that you can um, answer these questions with some facility. Because you can't, you know, if somebody comes into your to your parish and and says, um, you know, fa Father, you know, my my child is uh, is 17. When does when does he become an adult in the church? You can't say, well, I'll get back to you on that, and I've got to go and let me look at my commentaries and so on and so. Forth. You know, you got to know these things. You have to know these things, otherwise you can't function. You know? so, okay. So, uh, yeah. so we went through 23 canons or so tonight already. Sorry. So we were. We've gone through like 23 canons right. already today. Yeah. So we, we're going to be expected to, uh, again, just know them or to, because we're not diving into them, we're really just reading through them. Exactly. You need to know them as, as, I'm, as I'm indicating to you. Uh, in other words, you don't need to know them in, in, in any depth, but you need to know basically what they say, right? Um, so, uh, well, I don't know. Um, Where's one that we just looked at? Um, um, right, Canon 101, right? The place of origin of a child. And it goes into a lot of detail. The place of origin of a child, even if a, of a neophyte, that which the parents had a domicile, or lacking that a quasi domicile, the child was born, if the parents had not the same domicile, or quasi domicile, that of the mother, right? Well, basically, you need to know the place of origin of a child is, is, is where the parents lived when the child was born. Okay? That's, that's what it says. If there, if there is something uh, a little off about uh, the situation, uh, if it doesn't fit that exactly, then you could go back and look at the canon. Okay. But, you, but you wouldn't be expected to know, okay, the parents are lacking that at quasi-domicile when the child is born, if the parents are not the same domicile as the mother, okay, you don't have to remember that. But you have to know the basic rule and where to find it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it just—it's it, it, almost self-study then, because we—we're flying, Father. We're just yeah, flying. Yeah, we're flying. So, 
I have zero legal background except for reading contracts, but not not code law. So I'm I'm just I'm zapping what I can, but it's really going to be self-study is what you're telling us, except the ones that we can skip. Well, yeah, you have to you have to know the law. You have to know. Sorry. I, I'm, 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 I'm just debating whether it's easier for me just to sit. You tell us which ones to study, and I'll go study them. Because right now, all we're really doing is reading them. I, I don't mean to be argumentative at all, Father. Completely respect yeah. I just I'm trying. I have no legal background in, in Canada or in kind of law. I don't, I've read, I, I don't think. I don't think any of us do. None of us do. Courses don't. Yeah. So. Um, no, no. no but, so, so what I'm getting. Not every canon has the same um, weight and needs the same attention, you know? Age of majority is, is, is 18. We're going to spend yeah. half an hour discussing uh, that? No, 18. Three, 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 Next, you know. But we get to canon 1055. Yeah, I'm sorry, am I, am I distracting from other people in my class? I'm getting comments. I can't hear you. Other yeah. people are talking. Let's go yeah. to Morgan Stanley's. Sorry? Is Pardon? I'll talk about it later. Okay, so we got to... <laughs> all right, yeah, but, you know, every canon does not have equal weight. All right, canon 107 about domicile and quasi-domicile does not have the same weight as canon 1055. We'll I, I get all that. I, I'm just trying to understand I'm how... Just let it go. <laughs> listen, listen, guys. You, you, you may have your own opinion of, of understanding this, but I think I have a right to ask a question without getting... Okay. Let it go. Heckled by the class. No, I'm sorry, guys. No, I understand. Yeah. It's, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, guys. It's, it's, it's important to us. And what I'm getting is, we're canon laws, but we're not really going into any depth of the canon law. And I just want to understand what I need to know to be able to uh, do that. So I appreciate it. You let me talk and ask questions. I'm not heckle. I've sat through enough commentaries to four years with you guys. So it's my turn. I rarely ask questions. So. Well, we, we do go into depth, and you will see. Okay, we do, not go, we do not go into depth in every single canon. Okay. There's no way to study. All right, I'm trying to prepare you to be, to be deacons. I'm trying to stress what is important. Uh, I stress that, and what is of lesser importance, um, I, I don't stress as much. Okay? So we're not going to spend as much time speaking about uh, domicile and quasi-domicile as we, we will about the nature of the sacrament of marriage. And that will spend a, a lot more time on Canon 1055 than we do on Canon 107. That's, that's the nature of law. Not everything has, has equal weight, right? So, like that. so um, I don't, I, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to take up too much uh, more time because we have to cover the material. But if you want to contact me, we can talk about this personally. Or does anybody else yeah, have any? I'll reach out directly. I'm yeah. sorry. I, it's, I yeah. didn't for any questions. So. Does anybody else have reservations along the same lines? I mean, yeah, because, um, yeah, again, you know, what I, what I emphasize is what you need, what I emphasize. So you need to know that uh, better than, than other things, right? Um, okay. So um, then, blood, uh, where were we? Canon 107, did we finish that? Yeah, 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 okay. Canon 108, um, these are two terms that we're going to encounter later uh, when we get to marriage. Um, and um, Canon 108 and Canon 109, we'll just mention them now. We'll get, we'll get to them um, in greater detail later. 
consanguinity and affinity. Um, these, these are terms that we use when we're talking about um, relationships uh, in families. Right? And um, uh, consanguinity is blood relationship from the root uh, sanguis of blood, consanguinity, and affinity is a relationship by marriage. So uh, can in 108, uh, and we're just gonna, don't get all confused by this because we're gonna get into it in detail um, later. Um, consanguinity uh, is computed through lines and degrees. Uh, in the direct line, there are as many degrees as there are generations of persons, not counting the common ancestor. In the collateral line, there are as many degrees as there are persons in both the lines together, not counting the common ancestor. So I know right now it sounds like Greek. Uh, I'll explain it in a minute. Let me just read it through first, and then, and then I'll uh, explain it a little bit. Uh, so that's blood relationships. Uh, Canon 109 is about relationships by marriage, so not by blood. Uh, in other words, uh, if uh, when a man marries a woman, so his relationship to her blood family would be by affinity, right? So affinity arises from a valid marriage, even if not consummated, and exists between a man and the blood relatives of the woman, and between the woman and the blood relatives of the man. And it is so computed that those who are blood relatives of the man are related in the same line and degree by affinity to the woman and vice versa. All right, so let me now explain a little bit what, what this means. Um, so consanguinity is computed through lines and, and degrees. What does that mean? Um, we were just in the rare book room today. We don't have time, unfortunately, in this class to, to do that. We we're looking at some of these uh, ancient uh, uh, canon law volumes. Uh, and, and one of them had this marvelous uh, genealogical tree uh, uh, just showing the uh, relationships of different people in a family. But basically, you have, and let me know if you can't see this on Zoom, but you have, we'll see CA, a common ancestor, all right? We can't see your father. You can't see it? No, all right. And you can't see the black either. Right? Someone, someone move the camera. I would yeah, the camera. Oh, it's off the camera. I would yeah, so if you go on the right side, you can see oh, the whole thing. Oh, I thought, I think it would make so, it. The right side of the board we can see. Let me know if you can see. I'm going to move the TV. Okay. No, you moved oh, the, wrong the other way. way. You moved the other way. The other way. Ah, much better. Good. How far can you see? Tell me when it stops. The whole board. The whole board. You can see the whole board. Okay. All right. All right. So. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks, Doc. Now, the comments is. Um, the dad or mom, right? And he has, say it's a dad, just to make this quick, he has a son, and then he has a grandson. Or say a granddaughter, so you don't get confused. Okay? That's the direct line, okay? The son is related to the father in the direct line. The, grand, the granddaughter is related to the father in the direct line. Okay. Say he has a daughter, right? and then she has a son, you know, or a grandson now. Okay. Um, 
they are also related to the common ancestor in the direct line, okay? Direct descendants, okay? Your son, your daughter is your direct descendant. They're uh, related to you in the direct line, okay? Um, the daughter and the son, they're brother and sister, right? They're not related in the direct line, they're related in what's called the collateral line. Okay? Collateral line. Come you can read that. Collateral line. So the, the daughter is not a direct descendant from the son. Right? They it's a they're side by side lines. They're both related to a common ancestor, uh, but they are related to each other in the collateral line. Okay, the collateral line. And, and uh, similarly, the daughter, say, is related to the granddaughter, who would be her niece, in the collateral line. Right? The daughter is related to the grandson, her son, in the direct line. Okay, is that clear? Yeah. Right? Okay. Um, and then um, you compute consanguinity in, um, by, by these lines and degrees. So, um, and well, we'll just read it over and I'll, I'll show you how you do it. Uh, consanguinity is computed through lines and degrees. Number two, in the direct line, there are as many degrees as there are generations or persons, not counting the common ancestor. So, uh, we want to know um, the, the relationship uh, of the, let's see, um, of the, Say the granddaughter to the daughter, in um, we want to, we want to know that relationship. So we know it's a relationship in the collateral line, right? Because they're side by side. So uh, it's as many um, as many degrees as there are persons, basically generations of persons. So, uh, but not counting the common ancestor. So the number of persons involved here to get the relate relationship of this of the daughter to the granddaughter, the daughter on this side to the granddaughter on this side, uh, the number of persons involved would be one, two, three, four, right? You have the common ancestor, you have the daughter, you have the son, you have the granddaughter, right? The grandson is not involved in that relationship, okay? So how would you figure this out? You would count the number of persons and subtract the common ancestors. So how many persons? One, two, three, Four, subtract the common ancestor, you get the number three. They are related to each other in the third degree of the collateral line. Okay. Can you do that one more time? Yeah, I can't. Maybe, maybe, maybe let me start with the direct line. So um, the common ancestor is the son of the granddaughter. So in this, in this direct line, uh, what is the relationship of the son to the, um, to, to the, uh, does that work? No. No. Of the of the, of the son, yeah, this, the son to the common ancestor. Make it as simple as possible. We have this is the direct line. The son is a direct descendant of the of the common ancestor. The granddaughter is a direct descendant of the son and of the common ancestor. Um, how many? What is the relate the degree of relationship of the son to the common ancestor? You count the number of persons involved. You subtract the common ancestor. One, two, minus one is one. First degree of the direct line. Okay. 
Father, can you explain why this is important to us as deacons? Where would this come into play where we would really need to, how to apply this? When, uh, when Rudy Giuliani got, um, got married uh, back in, I don't know when the heck that was, uh, early, maybe it was the 90s or early 2000s? I think it was the late 90s. Late 90s? Yeah. I got a call from some newspaper, I forget what, some, some media outlet. Um, they wanted a comment because he had been married before and this person, I didn't know the details of it. I, I don't know if he got his annulment through the archdiocese or not, but um, he had been married before, I think to his first cousin, I think, I could be wrong, which uh, in canon law is invalid, okay? uh, but you'd get a dispensation. So, uh, so that's what you need to know. Okay, so um, yeah, that that uh, was a bit of a scandal at the time, but didn't really become much of anything. But that that can happen. So there are certain uh, degrees of relationship that are prohibited by canon law, and we're going to get into it when we get into marriage. They're prohibited by canon law and um, perhaps by natural law, but we're not sure. Okay, but we'll get into all that. All right. Just sorry. When you did the when you did the direct line, you did common ancestor, son, granddaughter, right? Yeah. You counting all those? You counting common ancestor, son, granddaughter? Three minus one is right. two. That's so, uh, so the relationship of the granddaughter to the common ancestor. Right. That's what you're saying. Right. So there are three persons: common ancestor, right. son, granddaughter. Minus the common ancestor. Right. That means two. two. So second degree Got of it. the direct line. Huh. Okay. Gotcha. All right. We're going to get into this more. Uh, when, when we're actually dealing with uh, um, with that canon uh, about uh, the canons about the, about this, all right, uh, in the marriage section. But just so you know, the direct line, the, the and the collateral line, and and the collateral line again. So the relationship, we let the grandson out. So the relationship of the grandson to the granddaughter, all right. You count all the persons involved. So there there are five persons involved, right? Grandson, daughter, one, two, three, four, five. You subtract the common ancestor, you have four. So the grandson is related to the granddaughter in the fourth degree of the, of the um, collateral line. Okay. And, then and, and any marriage up to that point is problematic. <laughs> so, yeah. And obviously the direct line would be the son, because he's right, right from the common ancestor. The direct line is what, I'm sorry? The, the son would be direct line because he's right from the common ancestor. The son, the relationship of the son to the common ancestor is in direct line. The relationship of the son to, say, the grandson on this side, in other words, his nephew, would be the collateral line. Right. Right. Direct line is always direct descent. Your right. son, your grandson, your daughter, granddaughter, whatever it is. Yes, so if, it's, if it's your sister's uh, daughter or something like that, then that's the collateral line. Yeah, so then five persons minus common ancestors, fourth degree, and you said up to that point is problematic in a marriage. Yeah, we'll get into up that to the marriage section. Yeah, I don't, you don't have to know that part now. Just to know this base, basic idea of, um, of consanguinity and affinity. Okay, um, now affinity would mean, um, say the common ancestor, say his name is Joe. Joe is married to Nancy, Nancy dies, uh, and then Joe marries Lois. Okay. So Lois enters the picture. Lois is now related to the common ancestor by marriage, but not by blood. 
Lois now is related to all of these people by affinity, by affinity. And she has the same relationship, relationship to them by affinity that he has by consanguinity. So, uh, so basically, um, basically, if you just learn those terms and this basic process uh, for computing, which we're going to get into again when we get to the canons that are about this, okay? All right. Any questions on that? But just don't ask us this until we talk about it further, okay, Father? <laughs> oh, I don't get yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll have a midterm. We'll have a midterm in a couple of weeks, I guess, and uh, yeah, or maybe three, three weeks. We'll see. Um, yeah, I'm not going to have you draw the tree right now. Yeah. But just to know, uh, this is this is the first introduction to it. Okay. But uh, you, this is a grand practice in Canada. Where you draw these genealogical trees. Okay. Okay. Well, why don't we take a, a, a ten minute break, fifteen minute break? What are we doing? What are they doing? Over it's up to you. 15, usually. 15, all right. So, so we'll meet at 25 up. And let's see if that's going to be a constant. Jimmy Queen. Yeah. Yeah. some getting used to. Um, but if you just go over that and remember the the um, example the examples that I've given and hang hang on to that information because we'll be looking at it again. Okay. Um, Canon 110, children who are adopted according to the Norman civil law are considered the children of the person and persons who have adopted them. Okay, so uh, Canon law is just basically baptizing Civil law here. We've seen that uh, mentioned that that happens once in a while. Canon 110. Okay. Um, now, Canon 111 gets kind of complicated and it comes up with surprising frequency. Um, it just came up with. It, it's come up several times with seminarians. Even um, we're not sure they're in the, the correct right. Uh, so Canon 111. This is an important canon to know. Canon 111. Through the reception of baptism, the child of parents who belong to the Latin church is enrolled in it. Or if one or the other does not belong to it, both parents have chosen by mutual agreement to have the offspring <coughs> baptized in the Latin church. If there is no mutual agreement, however, the child is enrolled in the ritual church to which the father belongs. Then, uh, further complicating things, anyone to be baptized who has completed the 14th year of age can freely choose to be baptized in the Latin church or in another ritual church, sui juris. In that case, the person belongs to the church which he or she um, has chosen. So, um, how do you know what rite you're, you're baptized in, right? You have, uh, you have all of these Eastern rites. Uh, how do you know what rite you're baptized in? Um, it, it says, um, first of all, it's, it's, it, it basically, you look at the parents, right? So parents have a child to be baptized. Simple, the simplest case, you have um, two Latin Rite parents, and they have a child, and so that child uh, belongs to the Latin Church. Okay, that, that's simple. Suppose you have a Roman Catholic married to a Ukrainian Catholic. 
I'm thinking of a couple just like that. Um, um, then, um, then what do you do? You, you, you could have the child baptized in the Ukrainian church or the child baptized in, in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Roman, in the Ukrainian Catholic church or the Roman Catholic church. Um, so the easiest solution from the point of view of this uh, Latin Rite code is both parents, the Ukrainian parent and a uh, Ukrainian Catholic and the Roman Catholic decide to have the offspring baptized in the Latin church, okay? It doesn't say, but it could be, that the child could also be baptized um, in the um, Ukrainian Catholic Church, but, but they would have to make very clear that that was happening. Right? Um, um, if there is no mutual agreement, however, the child is enrolled in the ritual church to which the father belongs. Okay, this is, this is very important. It comes up all the time. So the basic rule, Roman Catholics, Western Rite Catholics, no problem, right? Um, uh, no matter who, who baptizes them, uh, who baptizes the child, the child is, in fact, a Western Rite Catholic, is a, is a Western Rite, um, is a Latin Rite Catholic. It happens, uh, I, I've known uh, Catholics, um, Roman Catholics, Western uh, Latin Rite Catholics, who have been enamored with uh, uh, different Eastern Rite churches, uh, Eastern Rite Catholic churches, and they've gotten involved in them and they've gone to them for sacraments and so forth. And even if they do that, if they have uh, children who are baptized, say, uh, say you have, uh, there's, a, there's a lovely, uh, there's a beautiful Ukrainian Catholic church uh, a few blocks from, from the church where I was pastored down in the East, in the east Village. Um, it's beautiful, it's, the liturgy is beautiful, the, uh, the people attending mass are very edifying and so forth. And I could see, um, you know, a Latin Rite Catholic couple, say, who happens to live on Seventh Street, where it is, saying, "Well, let's go here instead. It's much nicer than the, you know, than the than the, uh, the Latin Rite Church." You know, so they're attending mass there and so forth. And <coughs> then they have a child, and they have the child baptized by the Ukrainian Rite Catholic priest. Um, that child is a Roman Rite Catholic. Okay, the the liturgy of baptism doesn't matter, okay? In this case, uh, canon law trumps liturgy, okay? Doesn't matter what liturgy you have, uh, it, it is the status of the parents, and if the parents are both Roman Catholics, then the child is a Roman Catholic too, even if a Ukrainian rite priest uh, is baptizing him or her, okay? Um, unless, I mean, they could make special provision, which would be really weird, I, I've never encountered it, saying, uh, in which they'd say, yes, we are, we are Roman Catholics, but we can't stand what Pope Francis is doing and everything else. We want our child not to have to suffer the way we have with these terrible bishops and everything, so we want our child to be a Ukrainian Catholic. I can see that happening, but that would be a really strange scenario. And if, that, if, when that, if that happens, then you, you have to call the chancery office and figure out what, what you're gonna do. But the normal, the normal scenario is, the, it doesn't matter who the priest is, whether it's a Byzantine rite or Ruthenian or whatever, uh, it doesn't matter who the priest is and what the actual ritual is that is used for baptism. Uh, but if the parents are both Roman Catholic, then the child is Roman Catholic. Okay. And the same does the same thing goes the other way around. Well, let's get get to the other ones. All right, that's number one. Okay. Um, and it's okay. So that's number one. Number two is if they, they belong to different rites. So the, 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 um, 
Say the, the, say the father is Roman Catholic and the mother is Ukrainian, is U Ukrainian Catholic. And they don't really talk about it. They just say, let's have the child baptized. And they go to the Ukrainian church and have the child baptized in the Ukrainian church. Isn't that great, you know? Uh, they don't really discuss it. Well, that child is still Roman Catholic. Because of the father. Yeah, okay. It, uh, when they haven't made a, a mutual decision, then, then, then the, uh, the right of the child father fo follows the right of the father. They could have decided to have the child enrolled in the um, uh, Ukrainian Catholic Church. They could decide that, but they would have to decide it make that decision. When they, when they don't decide it or they, or, or they can't decide it because they're both, both arguing about it, then, then the child belongs to the, the right of the father. Okay? Yo. Yeah. Well, there are two questions. Yeah. A few weeks ago, you said there were 21 Eastern Catholic churches. They have the Codex Canonum Ecclesiarum Orientalium. I'm reading out of my notebook. Yeah. Is there anything in that codex that contradicts yeah, well, if that our code, not really, but um, but there are diff different emphases, shall we say, you know, okay. because here it is saying that the child, um, um, it says the, the the parents can both choose uh, to have the offspring baptized in the Latin Church. It doesn't say they can have the, uh, they can choose to have the child baptized in the um, in the other church, but it's implying that, right? But the emphasis is the Latin Church, you know, so it's diff different emphasis. Um, and then again, if there's no mutual agreement, um, which could simply be the case if they haven't really thought about it, and they just say, let's have the child baptized Ukrainian church, but they haven't really decided the child is going to be Ukrainian, um, then the child is enrolled in the ritual church to which the father belongs. So if the father was Ukrainian, you know, and they, and they had the child baptized in... Um, would that work? In the, in the Roman Catholic Church, the child would, would, would be Ukrainian, unless they had parents had said otherwise. Yeah. That was the second question I had. Is there a reason why this baptism ascribes to the church of the father, but the domicile was with the mother? Mm -hmm. Earlier, like in another canon, you know, domicile... Um, oh, yeah, we were trying to figure out the domicile of the church. Parents did not have the same domicile yeah. to, to that of the mother. Well, that that's, I mean, and the lawyers here could could uh, maybe elaborate on that, but th that's kind of common in, in law in, in the West, right? That, they give uh, birth, basically. Pardon? The mom's giving birth. Mom gives the birth, so you give preference to the mom. I'm just surprised we go mom for the domicile, but then go to the father's. Well, because the, the child is probably going to live with the mom you know, just given the way biology works, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, but yeah. it's the right one. Yeah, well, what is, what is biology, you know, and, and where the child would naturally live? The other is uh, you're getting to legal systems and the, and, and the patriarchal uh, uh, mindset of, of, of all of this, you know. So uh, so suddenly the father has all the rights, yeah. So what can I say? <laughs> Be careful who you, who you mention this to. So you can have domicile, <laughs> you can have domicile in your mother's Diocese and parish would be a, a belong to your father's right Catholic because your parents yeah. were different. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, okay. Um, 
All right, so is that clear? So um, it doesn't matter then um, if, if, uh, uh, if, if you have, and this happens sometimes, Roman Catholic uh, people, just in general, people who are going to Eastern Rite masses and things. That's great. They're wonderful. They can get have their kids baptized and confirmed or whatever they want, but they still remain uh, Roman Catholics unless they decide they want to change rites, and that's a whole Megillah. Um, so uh, then anyone to be baptized, then number two. So this is someone who is, uh, wants to be baptized now. And I, I've had this come up. Maybe some of you have had this come up in Catholic uh, schools where non-Catholics are attending the school and they uh, decide they want to be baptized, right? So um, anyone who to be baptized who has completed the 14th year of age can choose, basically. They can choose the Latin church or another ritual church, sui juris, right? So they choose at that point. Before that, it's chosen for them by the law, but at that point, they can choose for themselves. Okay. Right. Then this comes up. Um, the, um, it, it's come up several times since I've been here for seminarians. We suddenly discover, wait a minute, this guy had a mother who was, you know, Byzantine or something like that, and you know, is he really Roman Catholic? Or you know, and we we've had to deal with uh, Eastern Rite. Uh, um, clergy and so forth, trying to uh, get things straightened out and getting permission for guys who had been thought they were Roman Catholic, but it turns out they weren't. Um, all this kind of thing. Okay. So, and what? So at 14 years of age, it doesn't matter what the parents say. Correct. The child can decide for himself or herself. Even though he's a minor. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of those exceptions mentioned in that in that canon about 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 minors. Yeah. Um, the, the way I'm thinking is, if, if, if the parents are, say, Protestant and the child wants to be Catholic, and we still give them the the, the right. Well, that's another whole thing. We'll we'll get to that when we get to baptism. We'll get to that, but um, that's a, that's a, that's a practical pastoral matter, you know. Um, yeah, you, you you don't want to do something the parents are going to get upset with More you about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that, that's that's another question, you know. But in terms of, granted that it's going to happen, and it's okay with the parents and everything else, it is up to the, the child, if the child is only 14, the child chooses what uh, church they want to belong to. And they go through the RCIA and the whole nine yards you know, at that age. Um, okay. All right, so change of right, okay, Canon 112. After the reception of baptism, the following are enrolled in another ritual church, sui juris. Okay, so this this is this is about changing rites. So if you want to change rites, and again, say you've, you've just had it with the Western rite, you've had it with the Latin church, you can't stand the Pope, you can't stand you know your bishop, whatever. You want to change uh, to another rite because it's so beautiful and everything seems just absolutely wonderful. Grass is green on the other side, etc. Right. So how do you change rites? Um, uh, you need permission. Uh, well, the first thing is, one possibility is you just get permission from the Apostolic See, and good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> because the church is very concerned about preserving the, the heritage of all these different ch uh, ritual churches. You know? um, and especially when it comes to these smaller Eastern Rite churches, um, the, the, the church want, doesn't want to to take people away from them, if uh, if at all possible, so uh, that could be a real problem. 
Uh, going the other direction, it might not be so hard, but, um, but it's difficult. The, the, the bad thing gives you, gives you a hard time. Okay. Um, but another scenario is uh, a spouse who at the time of or during marriage has declared that he or she is transferring to the ritual church sui juris of the other spouse. When the marriage has ended, however, the person can freely return to the Latin church. So um, that can happen. All right, and, and again, when you're doing weddings, be aware of this, that if you're dealing with two Catholics, but they belong to two different rites, you know, or two different churches sui juris, then uh, one can um, one can can change to the right of the uh, to the right of the other uh, when they get married, and when the marriage is over, they they can freely return. It says to the Latin church. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Again, the this is of the Latin code. We're talking about Latin uh, Latin rite people, uh, basically. Okay. Um, what do you mean? What, what do you mean by when the marriage ends? What what types of situations are you death, talking death, about? Death, basically death. <laughs> uh, possibly, if there's an element, basically I'm thinking about death. Okay. Um, and then um, and also the children of those mentioned in one and two. So before the completion of the 14th year of age, the children of those mentioned in numbers one and two as well as in a mixed marriage, the children of the Catholic party who is legitimately transferred to another uh, ritual church. On completion of their 14th year, however, they can return to the Latin church. Okay, so uh, don't worry, don't get into the weeds with that one, but just basically, uh, when you have one, uh, you have one or two, a person is, is enrolling in another ritual church <coughs> um, with the permission of the Apostolic See, or because of getting married to someone who belongs to another ritual church, if that person has children, the children can come with him or her uh, when, when that person changes uh, rights. If the children are under the age of 14. Okay. Now, obviously, this is an example of a case where if you get something like this, you want to go to these canons. Okay? You know, I, you know, I, I, I know this stuff pretty well, I think, <coughs> but I, I would go back and, and myself and double check it to, to make sure I'm getting this exactly right. Okay? So, um, but just be aware that, uh, in general, the children, um, uh, if they're under 14, go with the parents if they're changing rights. Okay. Uh, can 112, uh, number two, is very important. I, I already mentioned this. Uh, the practice, however prolonged, of receiving the sacraments according to the right of another ritual church, so a does not entail enrollment in that church. <clears throat> okay, so, and this happens all the time in the metropolitan area. People just get interested in, in other Catholic churches, sui juris, they're not going to the Orthodox churches, they're going to Catholic churches, sui juris, uh, and, they, and they receive their sacraments, including confirmation and everything else. They still belong to their own ritual church, so whether it's the Roman church or whatever church it is they belong to. Okay? So, the domiciles on those in. No, no, it's what you are. You are a Roman Catholic, you are a <coughs> Ukrainian Catholic, you are whatever you are. That's what you are. I'm what I am. You are what you are. To change that is is a big McGill. <laughs> okay. Um, but you. But on the other hand, you know we're kind of encouraged to enjoy all of these other uh, ritual churches because some of them are, have really really beautiful liturgies. Okay, that's physical persons, right? We're dealing with physical persons and juridic persons. The section on juridic persons uh, in in the Green Commentary on page 154 was written by Father, I think he became a senior, Robert T. Kennedy, who was one of my 
predecessors, a number of generations ago, teaching here at Dunwoody, and then he, he went to uh, Catholic University. Uh, and then I had him. I didn't have him here, but I had him as a professor at one time at Catholic University. So we're talking about juridic persons as opposed to physical persons. Everyone, as I mentioned, everyone here is a physical person. The seminary is a juridic person. Your parish is a juridic person. A religious community is a religious religious is a um, is a juridic person. So we'll get into this. Um, can one thirteen um, the Catholic Church itself and the Apostolic See have the character of a moral person by divine ordinance itself. We don't have time to get into this um, in detail. It's not important for your work as a, as a deacon or, or whatever you're going to do, but uh, it's the only time that canon law now uses the, the term moral person. You know, uh, we can think of this class as a moral person, you know, um, and the apostolic see, meaning the papacy and, and all the offices of the, of the Holy Father, uh, is considered um, a moral person, and the Catholic Church <coughs> itself is considered a moral person. But we don't have to get into that because we don't have time. But uh, number two is more relevant. In the church, besides physical persons, there are also juridic persons. That is, subjects in canon law of obligations and rights which correspond to their nature. And what are juridic persons? And again, this is not something you need to know in detail, but the general idea you need to know. A juridic person, canon 114. Uh, juridic persons are constituted either by the prescript of law or by special grant of competent authority given through a decree. Don't worry about that. But what are they? They are aggregates of persons, universitatis personarum, or of things, universitatis rerum, ordered for a purpose which is in keeping with the mission of the church and which transcends the purpose of the individuals. And the purposes mentioned in number one are understood as those which pertain to works of piety, of the, of the, of the apostolate or of charity, whether spiritual or temporal. Uh, the competent authority of the church is not to confer juridic personality except in those aggregates of persons or things which pursue a truly useful purpose, etc. So just to know the difference between a physical person and a juridic person, how do you become um, a physical person in the Catholic Church? Baptism. Good. Um, and a juridic person then is an aggregate, right? Um, that's the thing you need to know. Canon 114, number one, that, that second uh, sentence. That's what you need to know is basic, basically all you need to know. They are aggregates of persons or of things, right? Ordered for a purpose in keeping with the mission of the church, obviously, right? So that's a, that's a, a juridic person. Okay. Canon 114. Um, Canon one, uh, 115 repeats that, okay? Canon 115, number one. Juridic persons in the church are either aggregates of persons or aggregates of things. Um, and uh, don't worry about the rest of it, just to know that an aggregate of persons um, is one thing, obviously. An aggregate of things is like a foundation of some kind, all right? It's, um, it consists of goods, this is number three, 115 number three. It consists of goods or things, whether spiritual or material, and either one or more physical persons or a college directs it according to the norm of law and the statutes. But the, the thing itself, the juridic person itself, is a thing rather than a collection of persons. Right? So that's all you need to know again. Juridic person is an aggregate of persons or an aggregate of things. That's all you need to know. Okay. Um, public and private juridic persons, you don't really need to know this. Um, uh, I'll just mention it, but it's not really important for our purposes. 
Um, public, public juridic persons are aggregates of persons or things which are constituted by competent ecclesiastical authority so that within the purposes set out for them, they fulfill in the name of the church, according to the norm of the prescripts of the law, the proper function entrusted to them in view of the public uh, good. Other juridic persons are private. So the, um, uh, the Diocese of Brooklyn is a public juridic person. Right, um, a, 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 a club that may uh, foster vocations, you know, or something like that, would be uh, a private juridic person. It's not, it's not uh, acting officially for the church. That's the difference. You don't really have to know this, really. Just, just for your information, public juridic person acts in the name of the church, right? Uh, for, um, for canon, a canon law degree, I had to go to um, a pontifical university, a public, uni a public juridic person acting in the name of the church, as opposed to going to uh, you know, a, a Catholic college or a Catholic university like Notre Dame or something, which is not a pontifical university, you know, because um, it doesn't act in the name of the church the way the Angelican in Rome does. You know? So I don't want to get into the weeds with that, just to know that there are public and private juridic persons. Uh, you can skip 117, skip 118, skip 119, Skip 120. 121, uh, we're dealing with in real time. It's important to, to know Canon 121. Um, if aggregates of persons or of things which are public juridic persons, think of two parishes, okay? Um, which are public juridic persons are so joined that from them one aggregate is constituted which also possesses juridic personality. This new juridic person obtains the goods and patrimonial rights proper to the prior ones and assumes the obligations with which they were burdened. With regard to the allocation of goods in particular and to the fulfillment of obligations, however, the intention of the founders and donors as well as acquired rights must be respected. And again, you don't need to know this in detail, but you're going to be dealing with this. Um, I, I, I'm in a parish now that is um, an aggregate of, per, uh, th that is um, one aggregate formed by, uh, by two uh, juridic persons, uh, most holy, the Church of Most Holy Redeemer and Nativity. They joined the parishes and they, they closed one and sold it. Uh, now we have one pastor, uh, he's, he's an administrator, will be a pastor, for Most Holy Redeemer and Nativity, one church, which itself is a combination of two churches, and he's also um, the um, administrator of the neighboring church, which is uh, St. Bridget and St. Emmerich, which again is is uh, uh, is two uh, juridic persons that were combined into one, and these two, I'm guessing, someday are going to become one as well. The two parishes that he has. That's the way we're going because we don't have the priests. So this is going to be going on a lot in, in the lifetime of all of us. The consoli consolidation of juridic persons, and just to know that when that happens, typically we're talking about parishes here. Um, the the new juridic person then that is constituted, um, has all of the goods and the rights and the responsibilities of the two previous ones, okay? So uh, again, where I am now, Most Holy Redeemer uh, and Nativity uh, has all of the, uh, the goods, the patrimony, everything else that belongs to Nativity Church that was closed, right? And all the obligations as well, you know, if there are obligations to say masses in, per, in perpetuity. You don't want too many obligations like that, things like that. You know? 
Um, so it has all of the, the goods and the responsibilities as well of, of both of the, um, of the institutions that, that went uh, to form this one, okay? So just know uh, Canon 121 in general. You don't have to know every single little detail there, but just to know that basically um, nothing falls through the cracks, that all the goods and the responsibilities of both parishes, which is what we're talking about usually, now belong to the new one. Um, I would skip 122 because we're not we're not we're not worried about dividing Druidic persons so much. We're worried about combining them. Uh, skip 123, extinction of Druidic persons, um, and that's basically it in Druidic persons. Um, with all due deference to my uh, my former uh, our former professor here, uh, Father Kennedy, so who wrote this? Okay. Um, juridic acts. Uh, um, a juridic act is an act, uh, beginning with Canon 124, is an act that has some consequences in, in canon law, in church law. Okay? Getting married is a juridic act. Okay? Uh, that, let's get, get right to the chase here. Okay? This is what we're dealing with a lot. Getting married is a juridic act. All sorts of other things are juridic acts. Um, so Canon 124 is simply saying, uh, for the validity of a juridic act, it is required that the act is placed by a qualified person, right? So to get married, you have to have two people who are, you have to have a male and a female, they have to you know, be of a certain age, they can't be married before, blah, blah, blah. Right? It's required that the act is placed by a qualified person and includes those things which essentially constitute the act itself as well as the formalities and requirements imposed by law for the validity of the act. So uh, the juridic act of getting married, they, they um, must consent to, um, uh, to, to permanence, to fidelity, and to, the, to, to being open to the possibility of children. That, that constitutes marriage. If they don't do that, then, um, then it's not the juridic act of getting married, right? They also um, uh, must, uh, abide by the formalities and requirements imposed by law. So we mentioned if one is not baptized, you need a dispensation for, um, uh, for disparity of cult, as it's called, and so forth. So you have to follow the requirements uh, imposed by law. Right? So um, a juridic act placed correctly with respect to its external elements is presumed valid. Again, this applies to marriage. When, a couple, when somebody comes to you who got divorced, and says, I want an annulment. Uh, and the person says, I got married in this very parish three years ago by Father so-and-so, and we went to Precana, and we got a lot of dispensations. That marriage is presumed valid. Now, the annulment process might prove, prove otherwise, but it is presumed valid, okay? So it's, this canon is common sense. For the validity of a juridic act, you need to do what is required by law. And you have to have people who are qualified by law. And then um, if, at least externally, it looks like everything was followed, then it is presumed valid. Okay. That's important, as I said, for, um, uh, for, for marriage and other things. Uh, force and fear, Canon 125, we'll get into this more when we get into uh, uh, to marriage laws. An act placed out of force inflicted on a person from without, which the person was not able to resist in any way, is considered as never to have taken place. Uh, and so if, if a, you, you have a gunshot, 
uh, wedding, you know, that's considered not to have taken place. There was force. The person's dragged in and then gun results was said. It was physical force, right? An act placed out of grave fear, uh, distinction from force, an act placed out of grave fear, unjustly inflicted or out of malice, is valid unless the law provides otherwise. And if it can be rescinded, don't worry about the rest of it. But the basic thing about this canon, canon 125, is force and fear. Uh, and again, it applies to, to uh, weddings. Uh, and you need to look at the, the possibility when people are coming to you uh, who want to get married. And um, you want to make sure there's no force or fear involved. Sometimes, if there's not physical force, there might, in fact, be, um, be grave fear. Uh, a girl could be pregnant, and she comes from a very strict uh, family, and she's worried that if she... Uh, she tells her parents that they are going to, um, you know, throw her out of the house. They're going to disown her and all the rest. So she wants to cover up as best she can and wants to get married as quickly as possible. She's acting out of grave fear, and that could possibly be invalid. We'll get into that later. So just remember force and fear, okay? Um, kind of 125. Um, ignorance and error, uh, I wouldn't worry about that too much. Um, um, we'll get into it a little bit in, in uh, marriage law, but uh, Canon 126, an act placed out of ignorance or out of error um, concerning something which constitutes its substance or which amounts to a condition sine qua non is invalid. Otherwise, it is valid unless the law makes other provision. Um, so sometimes a person, um, you find this in marriage again, uh, Sometimes a person enters marriage who really doesn't know what marriage is. They're really ignorant, right? Um, uh, and that marriage could be invalid. So a person enters marriage and grows up in our culture and has a family um, that has this attitude and thinks that marriage is, you know, for as long as love lasts, as long as we want to stay married, then, it's, then we can stay married. But if we want to depart, uh, you know, no, no hard feelings, we can just leave, right? You can get divorced, you can get an annulment. You know, people think you can just get annulments, they think it's Catholic divorce. So, um, so there are a lot of people getting married now today who don't think that permanence is part of marriage. They're acting out of ignorance. And the marriage could be proven to be invalid for that reason. And we'll get into that later. Okay. So skip, uh, uh, skip Canon 127. Um... Canon 128 is common sense. Whoever illegitimately inflicts damage upon someone by a juridic act or by any other act placed with malice or negligence is, applied, is obliged to repair the damage inflicted. Now that's just common sense. Okay. <clears throat> all right, so these are all just you know, superficial kinds of things that we, we kind of need to be somewhat aware of. Um, now the power of governance, who actually has uh, power um, power in the church, power in the sense of, of government, right? Um, this is an important topic that is, um, uh, it's, a very, it's a very controversial topic now. Like, who has the power of governance in the church? How dare you say that only uh, ordained people can have governance in the church, you know? Why can't lay people be running the church, you know? Um, and it's a, it sounds great uh, in, in, in the parish where I am now, <clears throat> it's a very kind of left-wing kind of group, at least some of the older people there. Um, and they're all, um, one, 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 uh, one layman was delighted 
that uh, we have fewer and fewer priests because he says, well, that means lay people can, can start running things. I said, yeah. I said, people like, like Lisa, who is uh, the parish business manager whom I hired. And she's really, really good at what she does. And she doesn't tolerate any BS. And so, and then he said, oh, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, because uh, lay people, you know, <laughs> well, you're, you will not be lay people after you're ordained, but, you know, I mean, uh, lay people, uh, if you're in a, in a position of, of authority, you have to do your job. And it doesn't matter whether you're ordained or something else. If you're doing your job and people don't like what you're doing, well, too bad, you know? So, um, it's not personal business. Pardon? It's not personal business. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the power of governance. Canon 129, um, those who have received sacred orders are qualified according to the norm of the prescripts of the law for the power of governance, which exists in the church by divine institution. And it's also called the power of jurisdiction. So you need to know that. that the power of governance exists in the church by divine institution. It's not just a bunch of guys because guys seize power. It's not just, not just a bunch of guys keeping power to themselves, you know. But it's there by divine institution. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So uh, those who have received sacred orders are qualified to, um, uh, for the power of governance. But number two, lay members of the Christian faithful can cooperate in the exercise of this same power according to the norm of law. We see that all the time. So in the Archdiocese of New York, the person who has the supreme, uh, it doesn't matter, but I'm thinking of New York, the person who has the supreme power of governance in the Archdiocese is the Archbishop of New York. The chancellor of the Archdiocese of New York is a layman. And he exercises a certain uh, power, but, but what he's really doing, according to canon law, is he's cooperating in the exercise of it. He doesn't actually technically have the authority to exercise it himself. Right? Um, we have a, so you have that going on all the time. You have lay people in positions of, uh, of governing positions, really, in, in dioceses. Uh, and they, they, but technically they only cooperate in the exercise of, of that, of the power of governance. They don't actually have it. On tribunals, in recent years, they have allowed non-ordained persons to be, to function as judges on tribunals. Uh, a a non-ordained person could not be the judicial vicar in charge of the tribunal, but could be uh, one of the judges on a three-judge uh, court, you know, judging like a, a marriage case or something like that. Um, so the person cooperates in the exercise of uh, the power of governance, but doesn't actually have it. So sometimes, and there's a lot written on this, because sometimes if it you know walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, you know it seems like the lay people really are exercising the power of governance. You know, um, um, Bill Liston in the Archdiocese of New York, he's the, he's the uh, uh, the chief finance officer of the Archdiocese of New York. He's exercising the power of governance, whether you know, uh, technically he can only um, cooperate in the exercise of it, but he's calling the shots for a lot of a lot of people, you know, because um, uh, he controls the money, you know, and um, and technically he's subordinate to the archbishop, but day to day life, there's so much going on, things are so complicated. That he, he basically is exercising the power of governance, even though technically it's cooperating the exercise of the same power. So it's a distinction. We hope that usually means a difference, but sometimes it's a distinction without a difference. They are um, those who have the 
have sacred orders, can exercise the power of governance, lay members of the Christian faithful can cooperate in the exercise of the same power, according to the norm of law. All right, um, Canon 130, you all know the difference between the internal and the external forum. I don't have to get into that, I hope. Is anybody puzzled when I say in internal forum or external forum? You're, you're puzzled by that? Okay. Um, all right, we'll, we'll get into this very, very briefly. Um, basically, the difference is uh, confession versus uh, your public self in the church. So uh, if uh, confession, in a larger sense, like spiritual direction, but basically anything that involves a manifestation of your conscience, that is the internal forum. Okay. Uh, anything else is your is your public self in the church, right? So, um, so Canon 130 is um, saying basically of itself the power of governance is exercised for the external forum. There are certain exceptions for the internal forum we're not going to worry about now. Okay. Um, so the power of governance is for the external forum. Now, Canon 131, um, these are terms, uh, very simple terms. Uh, you need to uh, know the difference so you don't get confused uh, with what's going on in your own diocese. <clears throat> so uh, we're talking about ordinary, we're talking about proper and, and vicarious power uh, and delegated power. So ordinary power, Canon 131, number one, <clears throat> the pa ordinary power uh, of governance is that which is joined to a certain office by the law itself, delegated that which is granted to a person not by means, uh, but not by means of an office, right? So, uh, someone becomes um, the bishop of a diocese. Uh, because he is the bishop of the diocese, because he has that office, he has ordinary power. That's why he's called an ordinary, actually, okay? An ordinary is someone who has ordinary power. We'll see that later, okay? Um, so, um, and, but he can delegate that, and that happens all the time. Um, so a person who is delegated does not have that power uh, by means of an office, but it's just delegated. Um, the ordinary power of governance can be either proper or vicarious. Um, so a person has ordinary power of governance. Say he's the bishop of a diocese. He has ordinary power that is proper to him that he exercises on his own authority because he has that office. The vicar general, vicar, vicarious, right? Same, same uh, root. Uh, the vicar general has ordinary power of governance, and we'll see this when we, when we get to the description of the offices in the diocese, is ordinary power of governance, but it is vicarious. It is exercised for someone else, okay? So you can have someone who has ordinary power and he can delegate that to someone. That's different. He delegates to someone who uh, he delegates power to someone who doesn't uh, have that power to begin with. Okay, fine. Uh, but there are also people who uh, exercise power who already have. Uh, they're delegated by the law itself, if you will. They, they exercise the power vicariously. So a vicar general. A vicar general is not delegated. You and I have to be delegated, but a vicar general does not have to be delegated. But he doesn't exercise the power properly for himself. He exercises it for another. He's a vicar. A vicar is someone who acts for somebody else. The, 
the vicar general, the judicial vicar, uh, it exercises the judicial power of the uh, of the bishop in um, in the tribunal, right? or, or in general in the diocese. Right? So you have ordinary power. You have ordinary power and delegated power. Okay, that's one thing. But ordinary power itself is divided into proper power that belongs to the person by means of an office, or vicarious power that is exercised um, for another by means of the office that he has. Okay. Don't worry about number three. All right. So just get get those terms straight. Uh, don't worry about Canon 132. Don't worry about Canon 133. Um, and ordinaries. Um, Canon 134. In addition to the Roman pontiff, by the title of ordinary understood in the law of diocesan bishops and others who uh, are placed over some particular church or community equivalent to it. Okay. So uh, an ordinary is a diocesan bishop. Um, as well as those who possess general ordinary executive power in usually a diocese. So general ordinary executive power. In other words, vicars general and episcopal vicars. Right? Those are ordinaries. Um, so basically that's all you need to know. When you, when you hear ordinary, uh, that is the bishop of the diocese, uh, the vicar general, or an episcopal vicar. We'll get into what those are later. Okay? Those are ordinaries because okay? they have ordinary power. Um, now, there's a distinction, however, between the, uh, the, the, an ordinary and the bishop of the diocese. The bishop of the diocese is an ordinary, but an ordinary is not always the bishop of the diocese. Okay. So sometimes canon law will say specifically uh, the diocesan bishop. When it says the diocesan bishop, it means the diocesan bishop. It does not mean the vicar general or any other ordinary. It means the diocesan bishop. Okay, so an ordinary versus uh, versus a diocesan bishop. Right? That's important to, to know um, that that fine distinction. Repeat that distinction again. Bob. You, 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 may, you used the phrase to say one versus the other. Could you say that again? Yeah, and and um, an ordinary. Canon 134, right? Um, Canon 134 uh, says an, an ordinary is someone who has ordinary power. Um, in virtue of an office. He has ordinary uh, power. Um, the, um, and it's usually presiding over a diocese or something like a diocese, but typically a diocese. So a person has ordinary power, and that person is the, the diocesan bishop, or it could be a vicar general or an episcopal vicar. Okay. So, um, so a bishop, of the diocesan bishop, is an ordinary, but every ordinary is not necessarily a diocesan bishop. The vicar general is an ordinary, but he's not a diocesan bishop. Okay. All right. Um, the three types of, of um, power of governance. This would be in any legal system, as far as I know, right? They're legislative, executive, and judicial, right? And it's just common sense, right? Canon 135, right? So who makes the laws, who puts the laws into, um, into operation, so legislative and, and, and uh, executive, and then, um, and then judicial, uh, the one who um, 
who decides controversies. Right? I, I think that's pretty clear. Right? Um, um, I think we can just leave it at that. Um, all right, the, those three powers of governance, um, legislative, executive, and judicial. So um, th and then the next two canons describe executive power only. Okay. Um, so uh, canon 136, uh, let, let's just say to make it simple, canon 136, a uh, person who has executive power um, can exercise it over his own subjects, uh, no matter where they are or no matter where he is. Right? So if you belong to the, um, you know, the Diocese of Tucson uh, and you're traveling in Wichita, Kansas, and your bishop is in Los Angeles, he still can exercise executive power over you. Okay? doesn't matter where you are. Right. So a person is able to exercise executive power over his subjects, and also anyone, um, travelers, uh, who are actually present in his territory. Right. Okay, that's all you need to know about Canon 136. Um, Canon 137, just the first thing, ordinary executive power can be delegated. That's all you need to know. It can be delegated. I've mentioned that already. Okay. Um, don't worry about Canon 138. We're skipping now. Skip Canon, uh, Canon 138 through Canon 143. You can skip all of those. Okay. Um, Canon 144. We're talking about uh, um, these important. Uh, concepts, common error and positive and probable doubt. We'll just read it and then I'll explain it briefly. In factual or legal common error and in positive and probable doubt of law or of fact, the church supplies executive power of governance for both the external and internal forum. So what this comes down to is um, an example that could have come up in your own life, it's come up in my life. Um, if you are ordained a deacon, and you are asked to do a wedding in another parish. You need uh, delegation from the pastor. Okay. Um, it, it happened to me in a parish where uh, the pastor had uh, had had been removed. Actually, uh, there's there are problems in the parish, and um, there was an administrator in there who was like fly by night. You couldn't you couldn't get a hold of him. You know. Um, so and I was asked to do a wedding there and making all these preparations and so on and so forth, I never actually got a hold of the pastor and I never heard him say to me, you have delegation. You know, so I think it was implicit, but I wasn't sure. So what did I do? I went and did the wedding and acted just as if I had delegation. Because in that case, canon law tells us the church supplies, the church supplies executive power of governance. So it, it is uh, a situation of common error I acted as if I had delegation. I set up for the wedding, I, I had the rehearsal, I put on the vestments and everything. Um, and as far as everyone in that church was concerned, I was acting perfectly legally. I was the only one who had a doubt that I might not actually have delegation, but I was acting as if I did. So it was common error. I was putting the people in error 
and, and if, if I didn't have delegation, uh, I, I, I was imposing error on, on the people um, who were attending um, the wedding, which was fine. The church allows you to do that uh, because the church supplies the executive, executive power of governance. I can see that happening to you guys, you know. Uh, you, you know, you have a pastor, a son of Father Bruno. Um, he has a classmate from uh, North American College, I think it is, some priest friend of his in another diocese, who is pastor of four parishes, you know. So, you know, you have a wedding in one of those parishes. Well, the pastor is all over the place and you can't get a hold of him and so on and so forth. Um, but it's implicit because the secretary is telling you what to do and so forth. It's implicit that you have delegation, you're not 100% sure. You set up a situation of common error. You act as if you do have a delegation. Um, this happens sometimes with confessions. If a priest is in a place where uh, he does not have um, faculties to hear confessions, but it's an emergency kind of situation. He wanders into a church on Christmas Eve where, uh, in a place where he doesn't live, um, diocese where he doesn't live, and, and the pastor's called away on a, on a sick call, and you have 50 people lined up to go to confession. Um, he could go in and hear confessions because the church supplies the executive, executive power of governance for the external and the internal forum, in this case, the internal forum, okay? All right, so that's what's called common error. Common error. It's important to be aware of that, okay? Just that part, that's all you need to know for Canon 144. Okay. Good, okay, we finished uh, Title Eight. Go to moving along. Um, we're not gonna worry too much about ecclesiastical offices when we, when we get to that part. So, um, do we have, do we have class next week? No, no. Oh, you're sure, okay, because sometimes, all right, you guys seem pretty sure. Sometimes they cancel classes at the seminary, but they have them here, and sometimes vice versa. So, um, okay, very good. So I'll see you in two weeks, um, and we'll have, we'll talk about the midterm, we'll have it a little bit later. So, yeah. Okay, moving along. I hope we're, you know, again, we're doing what we can with this vast amount of material that we have to cover. But uh, um, I think you're getting the, the general gist of things, which is what you need to be deacons. Good, thank you all. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Pardon? We have questions for you. Yeah, I wrote my number on the board, right? At the beginning.